Hey, welcome to Cameras or Whatever, the podcast for the working photographer. I'm Tyler Stallman. And I'm Cameron Whitman. And today we've got Jordan with us again. Jordan Drake for the camera store. I'm back. He's welcome our, back, Jordan. He's our gear expert that really knows more than us about most things. <laughs> about stuff other than uh, your respective camera systems. And video as well. You're more of a video guy, as more, we've mentioned before. That's, that's basically where the income comes from right now. You know, I love going out and taking stills, but um, my work is pretty much exclusively video now. So if you haven't seen the Camera Store TV YouTube channel, you should. Because we're, we've actually been working on it a bit this week. Cameron, I don't know how much I told you about this. Did I tell you we're reviewing a lens? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's the new cheapo Canon 50. Yeah, the new 50 STM lens. And the old one, the old Canon 50, was uh, we were f- thinking about it. It's probably the best-selling lens ever made. Yeah, so. it's, it's got to be in more, on more cameras than anything else, on more Canons anyway. Exactly. But we didn't want to leave you out of this. Cameron, so we thought we'd make this a general 50 millimeter conversation. Sweet. I like general 50 millimeters. <laughs> Let's start off with the new Canon, though. Yeah, so the new one, they've kept it really, really cheap, which is not what I was expecting, because every time the big guys bring out a new lens now, it always seems to be double the price of the previous version. And how much is it exactly? It's 150 Canadian, so yeah. um, you know, pretty much right on par with where the old one was. It's still super plasticky. Um, they've basically tweaked it so it's a new motor type Uh, they added a couple more aperture blades to it so it looks a little less boxy all your out of focus areas well and what i was saying about it is that i was expecting it or hoping for it to get at least as good as the 40 millimeter that's sort of been the measure to me of how good a cheap lens can get yeah because that pancake lens i love that lens amazing the image quality is as good as the pro lines often to me Mm -hmm. um I mean, not quite, but if near enough, like it's excellent. Yeah. I don't feel like I'm compromising, putting it on the build quality is great. And I I feel like this 50 didn't come all the way there. It felt a lot like the previous 50 millimeter. And I was kind of expecting, you know, with 25 years between the last one and the new one, we'd think that, you know, (laughs) things would have uh, changed a little bit more than what we saw. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a little bit disappointing for me. And I really think, um, what these guys need to start doing, because we've got all these small little mirrorless cameras now, is make some really high quality small light lenses, which is why I love that 40 mil so much. Mm-hmm. I'm really digging the new 24 mil. Have you, have you tried that new 24? Is it similar? Does it come across? It, it's really nice, the... I, but a 24 is not a lens I shoot wide open that much. Yeah. So, you know, it was all kind of f7 to f16 kind of stuff so i haven't really tested it i've mm-hmm. more just thrown it on a body and i like it a lot but i love that concept of big camera small lens and that's all we're really curious about is what it's like wide open for yeah. all of these any most lenses look fine past 5.6 yeah they're, they're, they're kind of all the same and yeah I, I, there's not much point in comparing them like I, there's a, a video review i was watching the other day of really expensive 50s mm-hmm. And it was a good review in general, but a lot of the sample shots were shot at like 5.6. And yeah. it's like, well, it's yeah. kind of not the point. Um, yeah, exactly. Everything's getting so good on these guys now, especially, you know, we're shooting it on a 21 megapixel body. So once you start scaling that back, you're not really going to see the differences yeah. that much. What else? Looking at the 1.8, all the images we shot at 1.8, my general impression was that don't shoot at 1.8 with this right. lens if you are concerned about image quality. Assuming we're talking to professionals that are shooting for clients, yeah, it, 
I wouldn't want to deliver anything that was at 1.8. Well, Cameron, have you used um, much like the Nikon? You know, they had their old 518D, or there's the new G oh, version of those. Have you shot with them at all? Yeah, um, not not a, not extensively, but I have used them, and I thought that they were actually pretty great. Are they the same price, more or less? I don't know. They're, they're pretty close. Like they were metal, yeah. so they were always like a little more. But they were like 160 bucks Canadian. So yeah. you know, it's in the same the older D version. They've got a new G that's like 230. And it's a good lens, but it has the same issues with all of these. As these are lenses I want to shoot wide open. And looking at those images uh, with you today, Tyler, I was just like, oh, that, that purple fringing. And, and even the, the part that's in focus, unless it's perfect, which sometimes it is, but a lot of the time you'll see what to me looks almost like a digital effect of like you'll see the sharp focus line and then around it is like a halo that looks like a, a like a you bl- added a blurred image on top of it, yeah. like, and that's like the thing that you're hating. Yeah, and of course, it, along with that comes a whole bunch of purple. And <laughs> isn't it true though that almost all 50 millimeters that are fast and wide open kind of have a little bit of coma or purple fringing? I mean, it's it's only it's only like a super amazing high quality one that gets away from that exactly and that was that was like my take home that i just said to jordan a few minutes ago is that i think what this means in canons anyway is there's no there's nothing in between the sigma and the the cheap 50 there's yeah. no point in there's looking a, at anything there's else. gap between 150 and a thousand dollars yeah because you the sigma was at 1.4 was so much sharper <laughs> like it was yeah. a joke it, it it looked sharper than the the cheap 50 did at 2.8 it was yeah. Mm, yeah <laughs> it's a huge that's, difference that's my experience too and the percentage of, of photos that hit focus as well was much much higher um yeah focus was really interesting because yeah. um this is using this new motor type there's no equivalent to it in the nikons yet but uh it's called a stepping motor and the idea is just that it moves focus very smoothly from one point to the other as opposed to you know usually when you hit the focus button you see it kind of jump um mm-hmm. from one point to the other yeah uh and it's really for video is what this type of motor was brought out for, but they're putting it on a lot of their inexpensive lenses. And I was kind of wondering, you know, because I do shoot a lot of video like, Oh, why are none of the pro lenses getting this new motor type? Hmm. And I think we found out is the static shots, you know, if it hits focus fairly well, as soon as someone starts moving, it seems like it's, it's constantly it, out. It feels like it is a replacement for their old mechanical lenses, not for USM. Yeah. And again, USM is not new stuff. Yeah. Like that's got to be getting close to 20 years old as well at this point. Um, but it still, it still works, but it still seems to be the best motor type. Um, you know, it'd be the same as what we've got in those AFS Nikons and it works great. Do they actually work kind of the same way? Like, is it the same technology behind the Nikon and the, the Canon smooth focus? I mean, stuff? The, well for their, um, the USM and AFS, yeah. absolutely. There's no Nikon equivalent to this new STM lens yet. But uh, I've always found, I mean, you know, of course they'll always tell you that they're totally different. But if I take a AFS Nikon lens right. and a USM Canon lens and I focus, that it seems exactly the same in terms of how it responds. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I feel like this lens is kind of hamstrung a little bit because, um, you know, a USM version of it, for most of the people picking up a 51.8, you know, it's going to be primarily, I think, still photographers grabbing mm. that. Um, mm. So I, I honestly hope that there's going to have to be an update on Canon's 51.4 here pretty yeah. quick, because that's ancient as well. Yeah. And I'm hoping that's got the um, USM and some stabilization is the one thing I think is really missing from 50s right now. That part of the test is really um, 
really disappointing is how bad the 51.4 is. It's crazy. Yeah. Like even stopping it down to one eight, <laughs> I was like, oh, let's see if, um, you know, it still has a place in the lineup. Cause I tend to stop these down a little bit and it's really bad. I don't know how we lived under the delusion that 50 millimeters used to be okay because all of the available <laughs> options were not good until the Sigma. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Like I remember, I think it was a few episodes ago. I'm not sure if it was your Cameron talking about the um, Noct Deluxe, yeah. the Leica. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that would like, if you wanted a good 50, That's you, you were went. buying a rangefinder. It was right. pretty much the only option now. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, now I'd like to say we're spoiled for choices, but we're not because it's really the. The Sigma 50 is like the one accessible 50 mil that really stands out. And in all of this, the Canon 50 1.2 is also kind of just left behind. It's in the dust. Yeah, it feels extremely outdated as well. Do you keep your cheap 50 around, Cameron? Do you have one that you stick on the camera sometimes? I have the um, the 51.4 AFSD Nikon. Do you use it? um, I, I keep it. Because uh, it's it's small and it's uh, it's very light and it, it fits into my film bag very easily and also my uh, my Nikon FM three A doesn't take uh, the Sigma because it doesn't have aperture control mm, right so um, yeah I, I've kept it and I still use it but yeah I mean it's uh, I have to be very careful with it like I feel like shooting it at one four is always dicey so I I typically always shoot that lens at f two or higher. Yeah, I found um, with a lot of the Nikon glass, it kind of has the 50s have the same issue with, you know, not feeling extremely sharp, but I think the character is a little nicer on them. Like in terms of, yeah, the coma and, you know, uh, flare control, definitely those G-series Nikons are quite good. Because, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I used to shoot um, the AFD on an FM2 quite a bit, and I loved some of the pictures I got out of that, even if they weren't the sharpest. They had a nice character where... I always feel like I'm kind of making a compromise with the Canon 50s. So when I'm out shooting with an EOS 3, it's always 24 or 35 mil that I throw on there because I just feel like I get mm-hmm. a more inter- like an image with more character, less mm. awfulness. Right. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants awfulness. <laughs> less awfulness in this world. A lot of people that buy this lens are shooting it on crop sensors too. You know, they're spending less on their camera system in yeah. total. And so... Most of the yeah. time I encounter this lens, people are shooting it at more like an 80 instead of... Yeah, that's the thing about it being a budget lens mm-hmm. is, yeah, it's it's the portrait lens now. Right. And I don't know how much of those people are listening to the show, but I think it, it is important to note that, um, that these lenses, these 1.8 lenses are amazing tools to work, to learn on. <laughs> they might not satisfy people like us, but... Um, for somebody that's that's getting into photography and and they want to to really learn how to make photos, I I would recommend one of these lenses first every day of the week. Yeah. It's just such a, such a better tool to to learn how to compose photos with. Yeah. I think I'm going to start shifting my entry level recommendation a bit though towards the either the forty or the twenty twenty four right now twenty yeah twenty four uh, the the pancakes for the for pancakes Canon. yeah because yeah. the, the, they're sharper always. Mm-hmm. I mean they're only two. Only 2.8. They're 2.8. Yeah. yeah. The cameras are so sensitive at yeah. this point. That's less of a concern than when we always had to shoot, you know, max 400 speed totally. film. And I think that if people start learning, getting too used to 1.8, like they think you, they think you can just always shoot at 1.8 right. and they don't see for the first while when you're learning, you don't see that image quality problem. Yeah. You just look at it at screen resolution. You're like, wow, it looks great. And um, as you become more sensitive to what is wrong with shooting it at 1.8, or not wrong with it, but the, the 
obstacles and the, the limitations the, yeah, yeah and the, the damage it can do to um kind of if you're if you're using it all the time you have a lot of photos that are nearly as sharp as they could be yeah um well you, they're also not very defined yeah yeah <laughs> it's just a bunch of just a bunch of swirl like yeah. i'd rather if i were to go back and look at my first two years of photography i'd rather it all have been shot on the 24, the 40, then it all been shot on the 50. I guess that's what I'm saying. Well, and the other thing too, when you're starting photography, where that 50 mil on a Canon body to a major extent excels is at portraiture. And what if you're not a portrait person? What if you're more interested mm -hmm. in, you know, landscape or street or something like that? That's going to be really difficult to get pictures that satisfy you. When I think you're doing most that. people find that that cropped 50 millimeters to be too close. Like I, they, it's closer than they expected. I, that, I, that always, yeah. I fought that when I got my first digital SLR is just constantly backing up with a 50 millimeter. And oh, it's just not, I'm just using my calculator here and the 40 millimeters is a 64 mm -hmm. equivalent. And the, uh, 24 is a 38. Yeah. So both of those are like, they're weird numbers, but those are really useful ranges. Totally. For a newbie, for somebody that's just mm -hmm. started. Yeah. One thing I wish Canon would uh, do that Nikon did quite a few years ago is just make a budget 35mm 1.8 um, for people mm -hmm. getting started. <laughs> so they get that normal focal length back. Because um, I, I do feel like it's easier to learn photography when you've got a focal length that doesn't really put many constraints on the type of pictures you can take. I'd be curious to go back to the 35 2.0. We, we still have one sitting around and never really take it out. And I wonder... I don't remember how it looks really. I don't, I don't remember how it stacks up. I've the... got one of those, um, but it's it's really it's a thirty-five mil two-point-eight lens for oh, me. Okay. Anywhere mm -hmm. below that, it starts. Yeah, you've got the coma, and that thing flares like crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I love that focal length. So, but oddly enough, it's my small light lens, so it tends to just live on my film cameras. And there's mm -hmm. something to be said just about that size too. Yeah, like the the fact that they're made of plastic. Yeah, it means they're certainly going to fall apart. But it also means there's no, it doesn't feel like anything in your bag. Yeah, exactly. And it's great too. There's just enough weight on that when you've got one of those attached that when you do drop the camera, it's going to land on that cheap plastic lens. <laughs> yeah. Destroy the lens, but save your camera. It's like a big cushion. Exactly. And <laughs> that's probably saved a couple of my bodies. How does it stack up to other, other brands though? I mean, this is only something you would know, but like I, I tried the Sony recently, which is about a thousand dollars. Is that right? Yeah. The Sony's got a 35 mil, um, 2.8. That's oh, sorry. I meant the 50 though. Oh, the, the 50. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, their 55 is really low. Like a lot of people compare it to the Sigma. It's yeah. not as fast a focuser. Um, and I almost never use it cause it's manual focus by wire where you're spinning the lens and nothing's, you're not connected to it at all. Right. There's that physical connection, which drives me crazy as a video guy, but mm. Uh, but optically, it's a beautiful lens, and it has that Zeiss look. It's very contrasty. Like yeah. you don't have to process those images much. Yeah, that was that was the one that uh, I was using for the video shoot the other day when I went to the camera from mm -hmm. from you guys, and it looked amazing. It looked like what Canon should have always looked like. Yeah, yeah, and probably reminded you because it reminded me a lot of the Sigma. Yeah. Uh, 514 when I started. And then same with the Fujis. Mm -hmm. I've got the Fuji 35, which is an equivalent to a 50 on mine. Yeah. And it, that's a gorgeous, I know quite yeah. a few people who have Fuji cameras just to shoot with that 35. Yeah. And I would never complain about that yeah. lens ever. It's great. Well, and it's funny because the Fuji 35 has been out now for about, I guess, three years, something like that before that Sigma 514 came out. And I know, yeah, a lot of pro photographers who are like, oh, I'll just buy the cheapest Fuji and this lens and that'll be my 50 mil for my kid. Yeah. Uh, because the 
Canon Nikon options that those guys are using and wasn't great. How much does the Fuji cost? The Fuji is six hundred dollars. So okay. I would love to see like a Canon fifty one four Nikkor fifty one four. Yeah, at that price that competes with that lens. Yeah, that's that's what we were saying. Is what what are they going to do for that mid range fifty? It doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, I don't know how they're going to make it make sense. But they they have to redo their whole line though because yeah. the the high end uh, Canon as well just needs to be done. So. I don't know. Maybe they just have a low end and a higher end. Oh, right. There's the uh, the um, image stabilization rumors that we've heard. So. Yeah, if they did do a one four with a stabilizer, that would be kind of fill that gap. And Nikon's done a better job. They've got that fifty one four G, which is an okay lens, mm-hmm. um, but still six hundred dollars, and that Sigma's just so close. Yeah, to, yeah. you know, it, it's tough to you know for most people. I'd recommend stepping up. Yeah, I don't think that there's there's not enough in that Nikon to. It, the price is better, but like the Sigma, Sigma is still better. Sorry, it's yeah. still the same. Just like spend a little more. Yeah, the the G still has the same issues that the D did. Mm-hmm. So it looks a little nicer, but it's it's you know it's still plastic. And well, what's really great is we used to spend all this time like ah, I hope Canon brings something out. But just with this movement with the third party lenses in the last few years, you know maybe it'll be Tamron or Takina or somebody will bring out that yeah. really sweet $500, 50 mil, you know, one eight or one four yeah. or something. Um, you know, we don't always have to wait on the big guys to fill those gaps in the line. I think it's weird that Canon became the de facto lens mount, like EF lenses became the standard for video and for, I mean, there's one of the most widely used mounts because Canon glass was really well regarded. Mm-hmm. And looking back at a lot of the glass that was present when that transition happened. Like it's so much of it's not very good. Yeah. You know, the, they're, I don't know. I don't want to like go through listing every Canon lens and what I think of it right now, but there are many <laughs> Canon lenses that just aren't. No, good. not up to snuff anymore. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's funny. I went out with a really good photographer, Kyle Marquardt uh, last week in Canmore shot the uh, new Tamron 15 to 30 against, which is like a $1,200 lens against his uh, Canon 16, 35, two eight. Uh, which is, I think, still $1,800 or something like that. Mm. And the Tamron just creamed it. Um, and mm. that's got a stabilizer in it as well. Um, it's totally weather sealed. Uh, so I think that's one of the great things happening right now is it's probably going to take two years of these third-party guys just putting out killer product at a good price before you know, Ken and Nikon have to respond eventually. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just really interesting to hear the sentence uttered, the Tamron really creamed it. <laughs> yeah. I never imagined that I would hear that. So that's cool. Yeah, it used to mean like you dropped your camera. Your, your, yeah. camera. your camera? Your camera? Yeah. Or, or creamy details where they should have been sharp on that Tamron lens. Yeah, exactly. uh, but it's funny, once we um, wrap here, I'm going to shoot a little outro to our episode, and I'm going to be doing it on a Tamron 2470. Uh, yeah. yeah, so if you want to see the results of everything we're talking about, then what's the actual URL? Uh, it's youtube.com slash the camera store TV. Yeah, and that's where you can see the test images. And, and then, Cameron, you, you can know what we're talking about. Sorry, we didn't yeah. have them After the to, fact. to show you. Yeah. Sounds great. <laughs> I'm getting used to that. <laughs> There's something I was thinking about, thinking about the ways that you use a 50 and how it's really different what a portrait lens is if you're shooting vertical versus horizontal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is traditionally you'd think of it in difference of like what you use for video versus stills, because when you're shooting video and you're always horizontal, it fe- the um, because of the parts of the lens that are getting cropped off, 
uh, different areas of the image are getting distorted, right? Right. So if you have like the person in the center of a horizontal image, mm. they're completely safe. Yeah. The the top of that frame is not hitting the distortion of the lens at right. all. Where you do a full body portrait with it, and that person's head is getting dangerously close to the yeah the danger zone. And it's it's all sort of yeah. basic stuff. I just like I had some things kind of some ideas clicking in my mind of like yeah that's not something that anybody ever explained to me mm-hmm. that to get the same to get a similar portrait in a horizontal image you would use a different focal length than in a vertical image um i don't know that was, has that always been obvious to you cameron no <laughs> not at all until you just told me now and i'm like thinking about it like oh yeah that i guess that's true because <laughs> if you if you picture it as the the lens being a circle well, obviously it's a circle but like the image that it's projecting is completely round it's mm-hmm. not stretched in any to, to any way it doesn't favor any side over the other right. and if you cropped it as a square like it, things would just be completely different the whole center of the image would be fine so it's always the center of the image that is okay yeah well and i can you, i can feel that so much when i'm taking pictures especially portraiture where i'll get up there with my 50 and i'm shooting in my horizontal frame that i'm used to because mm-hmm. i'm shooting video so often and then i'll flip it upright and then i immediately start walking backwards right. um right. you know you do have to where mm. you know if i had the time to think it through properly and i liked my um composition and everything i'd probably switch over to like a 35 or something for that yeah. vertical portrait and it's something i, I kind of have just been doing this without putting it together just subconsciously when I choose lenses. But like when I'm shooting video, I'll pro- for something I would use something like an 85 for in a still, mm-hmm. I might just choose a, a 50 yeah. in a, in video because it's horizontal. Yeah. When I look back at some of my images and I used to shoot so much at 135, that was one of my favorite focal lengths. Mm. Um, and I never pull it out. Uh, 85 is as long as I'll ever take out for video, right. which makes perfect sense if you think about that, because it seems like it's about that, you know, two-thirds the focal length for portrait. Well, and this leads me to what I really want to talk about, which is why is there no square sensor popular camera cameras? This seems very obvious to me. I've brought this up. I don't know if it was ever on the podcast. Maybe it was just when I ranted before there was a podcast. I'm pretty (laughs) sure I remember that being a podcast topic. But Uh, like, it drives me crazy. It just, it's such an obvious idea to me. I mean, you could... You could like crop after the fact if you want to just take all of the space of the lens and fill it with pixels. Why is this not happening? Yeah, it's it's not like there is still the micro four thirds is the closest thing to that because that's a four three aspect ratio, which is pretty close to what we see on medium format cameras, you know, um, mm-hmm. like a six four five or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I do feel like that's always a real like I crop my images less when I shoot on a medium format camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be like a fun experiment. Um, sometime we should just set you up with like a Pentax 645 and see. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just see how it changes the way you shoot. Cause well, the it, awesome use I was thinking of is for cell phones where people don't notice quality as much. And like, it means that as you rotate your phone and as you do stuff with it, you would never have to worry about, like you could always crop afterwards. Yeah. Um, you could hold the phone vertically and record just as good of a horizontal image. So you could record all your video, just holding your phone the way that it's comfortable to hold without rotating it. Well, do you think that's a big part of the appeal of Instagram as it forced people to see things in a square and maybe it's like a forgotten shape for a lot of photographers. There's a lot of technical advantages to us to being even on both sides. Like you, it opens up a lot of options. So anyway, maybe Instagram needs to build a camera. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) 
Yeah, I could see that on um, one of those larger sensor cameras would be a really slick option. Just, you know, one button press square frame. Mm -hmm. And we've got that on uh, the Nikon bodies now, I think. Uh, D800 has that, doesn't it, Cameron? Uh, The D800, you can can do a crop sensor to... like an eight by ten or four by five or whatever, but not a square. Okay, because yeah, that'd be great to just see in the viewfinder. But yeah. even then, I mean, we're still throwing away the edge of our sensor then, so it's still a bit yeah. of a crop. I'd love to see, yeah, like you said, something that just captures that image. And the the sensor needs to be good enough that you can crop it both ways, and it, like you can, it's it has to have the quality, yeah, in it. Um, that that but, seems like something like a Rico will do. Like some yeah, weird yeah. company will do something like that, and it'll be very interesting. Yeah. Well, I'd, I'd love to see it. And they were the first ones to start doing like the, what I'd been saying for a long time I wanted was like a fixed uh, point and shoot, like what n- now you're shooting with Cameron, the, your Fuji. Mm-hmm. But it took a Fuji or did, did Rico do one of those as well? I they mean, did. Yeah. There's a Rico GR that's yeah. a digital 28 fixed um, kind of follower in that line, which is a great camera. But none of the big brands would have even considered it. I don't think like, I think it was strange and interesting that these smaller companies decided to, they seem to be where the really good ideas are coming from. Right. Cause they're, you know, honestly more desperate. Like yeah. Canon and Nikon can keep doing what they're doing and they're fine. But then you've got, yeah. Companies like Rico making that GR, um, you know, Pentax is doing some cool stuff in medium format. Cause they, you know, they're not really competing on the SLR side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's great. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I think Pentax, I could see Pentax as being a medium format cam- company soon. Well, like, that's, it's seriously one of the best cameras. Because who cares about their point and shoots? Nobody. Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm going to set that up. I want to, you should go out with a six, four, five. Yeah. The, tell they, me what, tell us what you think. They, they look, do amazing. it, do it. <laughs> I think, I, I think I should. Yeah. Fire some files off to Cameron. See how much it's crazy what you can do with those yeah. things. Uh, well, and I've always wanted to see, because I've always heard about that. There is just increased latitude. Like there are more advantages than sharpness in, yeah, because Canon's going to have a 50 megapixel, and the images from it look like really sharp, like yeah. medium format sharp. But there's there's a difference to that, and it's the same thing you find when you shoot film medium format. Like mm-hmm. that, there's a you know separation and a depth to it that's all its own, mm-hmm. um, and you get that on the digital side, and you can underexpose your image by like six stops and save it. It's crazy. But uh, yeah, I think that would be that would be a test. I'd just be curious to hear the results. Yeah, me too. Um, what else? I don't know. That that was everything we had to say. And sorry to leave you out, Cameron. <laughs> what have you been shooting, Cameron? <laughs> yeah, what'd you uh, do this week? This weekend, I did a lot of experimenting. So, um, really curious to see how it all turns out. And I'm also really scared because I was shooting with the four by five, and I had to do the uh, the Bellows extension mm. math, which isn't really difficult math, but it's just like. I don't know. Until you actually do it and see what the results are, it just feels... Is someone doing an app to help with those? Because I haven't heard of one, but that would make a lot of sense. I really wish somebody would. And just like take the... the, Just be able to plug in the data and and have it spit out the the exact exposure compensation. That'd be really smart. And I don't... Like, I guess it's just probably there's not enough people doing it to make it worthwhile. Because, I mean, how how many apps are you going to sell? For large format shoot, <laughs> well, at least one to you. Well, I mean, you might sell a hundred. You know, like mm-hmm. just don't know like how many more there would be. So, for anybody listening, you could make a hundred dollars <laughs> if you built that app. Well, between the I mean, I would, to be honest, I'd pay tw- I'd pay twenty bucks for an app like that if mm-hmm. if it if it was legit and it worked and it did what you know that'd be great. 
I'd be very happy to. So you shot it, but you haven't got them back yet. This is no. Still I mean, the... I shot I shot some yesterday of of my son, and then t- uh, today of my mother. So um, yeah, and they're all in the studio. So I'm just experimenting. And what are you using to scan those once you get them back? Um, I have an Epson forty nine ninety. Okay, yeah. And uh, I just actually got that set up up and running. I actually bought this scanner in two thousand seven, I think, and uh, never used it. And so these were the images you sent me the other day, right? Yeah. Yeah. I went to uh betterscanning.com and bought some of their, um, their negative holders and they're really beautiful. They're a lot better than the ones that, that Epson provides, um, which I think I lost uh, uh, 10 years ago. To be honest with you, I'm like, my mind is blown. I'm so impressed with the quality that I got from my initial scans it's having low expectations. Yeah, I was really surprised. I, I expected worse. Yeah, the colors looked amazing. Yeah, yeah. usually there's like a flatness and lack of contrast to to the flatbed scans that I see. Did you do um, a bunch of post-production to bring it up, or did it just come out the way you hoped? Um, I, did have to, I did have to do some post-production, but then like I... In subsequent images, like I had figured out what I was doing in ViewScan that needed to to make it better. Uh, it turns out that in ViewScan they have, there's a lot of options for selecting specific films and those are wrong. <laughs> like the, the outcomes are, they're hideous. They're so, they're so bad that, that it would just, the first couple of tries I was like depressed. I was like, I got to stop. I'm just going to throw this thing away. Now that you're becoming the expert in this, you're going to have to give us a tutorial. Like uh, you're going to have to do yeah. the definitive YouTube tutorial of all this. Yeah, I, I I probably will because it's just realizing the the amount of power that that I have within stuff I that's just easily available or, or affordable. It's really liberating because now I feel like I can just shoot with abandon on my my medium format and get great work, and also large, you know. So now I'm I'm really curious and excited to start shooting some large format because I've had this camera for ten years and have not really ever used it. Could you sometime do a comparison of 35 mil scans so we could see what your pack-on looks like next to these flatbeds and decide how much the pack-on is hype and how much it is better than what you're getting out of a flatbed? Yeah, well, it's it's going to be really difficult because I don't I did not buy the the negative carriers for 35 millimeter. Oh, okay. So I don't know how I would give an accurate. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean what I can do is I can I can compare the results from the from the Epson versus like Indie Film Lab. So that would be like yeah, the either yeah. the Noritsu or the uh or the Frontier. I'd like to see that. That'd be interesting. Yeah. I'd also really be curious, yeah, just with the uh, Epson scanner shooting medium format, how that compares to thirty five scanned really well with your pack yeah, is that it? Pack on, yeah. The pack on, yeah. Pack on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd be curious about that yeah, as well. Um yeah, and I'm I'm growing ever more curious because I think that um, some of the some of the beauties of the the pack on is that like it's it's mostly speed is the real beauty of it because you you insert you insert the entire roll at once and you just let it eat it up and it scans the whole thing in less than five minutes and you're done you have all these scanned images and if you shoot on Kodak film then the pack on automatically or auto, auto magically seems to to have a, a fairly close sense of getting the uh, color correction right yeah 
um, when you when you feed it Fuji films, it's like it's always like super super cyan. Yeah, it's because it's Kodak, and they were just trying to sabotage the competition. It seems like it. It's it's interesting. I've I've actually I've, I've I've discovered that from roll to roll with with my consumer film, I'm not getting the same results right. every time, and so. Um, I'm not convinced it's the pack on. I'm, I'm pretty sure that I just need to figure out on my end a better system. Mm-hmm. But th- there is still that, you know. Like I'm just in the in the four or five scans that I did yesterday on the on the Epson. My color was just amazing. I just got curious if there was conspiracies back in the '80s and '90s that Fuji scanners would make Kodak intentionally worse, or or, or vice versa. Yeah, I mean, I'm I worked just, I worked on a Frontier. I'm no, I'm sure you did too, which is Fuji, mm-hmm. and yeah. I never really noticed Kodak looking too awful. But I'd I'd really like to check now but that it, I wouldn't know it make a sense for them to color. do that. Why wouldn't they do that? That would yeah make a lot of I mean, sense. I would do that. Um, <laughs> have you tried pushing? You're a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> Have you tried pushing any of the new Kodak film through the pack on? Does it understand like um, Ektar or anything like that? Yeah, it, it, it actually it, it processes the Ektar beautifully. That's funny because yeah, that would have come out well after uh, pack ons were discontinued, even right? Mm-hmm. Yes, um, you know I think it's it's more to do with whatever the film base is. Like I'm pretty sure that the Kodak film base is is always the same. Whereas like the Fuji film base is probably always the same as well, so it's the specific color of of the emulsion. So right. th- like whatever the the orange or whatever it is, because that's what it you know it's filtering that out of it. And so I think that um, whatever whatever those differences are is the main factor. Cool, mm-hmm. Jordan, your turn. Um, this week has been honestly all doing lens videos uh, for camera store TV. So. The Tamron, the 50, that's kind of what I've been up to. So we just talked about it a lot. So we've really gone through, yeah, basically my week. And that's all you do. Do you have any software tricks in the uh, app recommendations? Um, I've oh, been... Oh, you, shit, just made me realize I have nothing as soon as you're done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to look at my phone while you do this and try to think of what I've been doing. Um, God, it's boring. There's a new Final Cut update that I've been playing with. Um Okay, I'm going to completely deviate from that. Then, have, have you guys heard of Joe Swanberg? No, nope. he's a director. I have no. He's this guy who like self produces these movies with fairly big actors a lot of the time, um, and just shoots them around like his place and friends' locations. And I've just become obsessed with his movies lately. It kind of came from like that late aughts uh, mumblecore thing. And uh, his his big um, like his biggest budget one was a movie called Drinking Buddies that came out. Um, but I just saw a movie of his called Happy Christmas that he actually shot himself on a 16 millimeter motion picture film because um, <laughs> it's it's becoming so you know cost prohibitive. He's like, I want to do this once before I can never do it again. And it's it's a really interesting look. Like immediately, I'm starting to just correlate you know indie film with bad lighting and you know not too much camera movement Mm -hmm. but it used to be that 16 mil look was the giveaway and as soon as i started i'm like oh my it's like a 90s indie film yeah except all these are like current actors you know like anna kendrick and um that new zealand woman who's in everything now but uh it's it's (laughs) but it's crazy yeah my wife and i have just been like plowing through because this guy is like in his late 30s and he's made like 20 movies uh he's also writing them i see yeah, writes, directs, acts a lot of the time. Cool. Check them out. Yeah, it's totally That's worth really taking cool. a look at. I haven't had time to watch anything lately. I'm just still thinking about Mad Max. <laughs> but did you see Mad Max? <laughs> I still haven't seen Mad Max. I've been watching Joe Swanberg movies. Just all for week. production reasons, it's 
that's what gets me really, it's happened a few times. Like last one was, um, interstellar, but like I keep getting a movie stuck in my head for like six months and it's usually something about the production of it. And like, Oh my God, how did they do everything? Yeah. Well, and that's, it's funny cause interstellar and Mad Max remind me a lot cause it's that same, like, let's get back to basics and try and do as much in the real world as yeah, we possibly actually. can. And there's still a lot of effects and stuff. It's, it's funny. I didn't realize, but that probably is why. Yeah. Well, it's funny leading up to Mad Max. I was so like, I was watching all these behind the scenes things and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And of course there's a lot more out now that it's been released, but I was just obsessing over like, Oh, that camera's actually in that place. And those <laughs> yeah. people are actually bouncing back and forth on giant sticks. Yeah. even had some five D's mixed in there, which I found interesting. <laughs> well, it's, it was shot a long time ago. How long that thing's been in post for like yeah, three and a half years or something like that. So it's funny, yeah, wow. you see all these things where they're using old 5Ds or like the old giant Ari Alexis. Oh, Mark II. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but I love that stuff. And I, th- I mean, maybe that goes back to the Joe Swanberg thing mm-hmm. is I just love that idea of like what you're seeing exists in the real world and has, you know, a real weight to it. And totally. that's why I tend to be in the theaters so rarely in the summer these days. Yeah, we have less and less of that. Maybe that's why it's so refreshing when something's real. Yeah, and it's doing well. That's what I think is really exciting mm-hmm. about this. And Interstellar is maybe, you know, if these keep doing as well as they are, then that might lead to, you know, kind of a return to grounded filmmaking. Totally. It's always driven me crazy that these big Hollywood movies have the budget to actually do things. And usually they choose not to because it's, I mean, yeah, you could kill a stunt person or something like that, but... <laughs> I'm wondering, I'm wondering if what will be the trend, will it be trendy for a little while to go back to real or will it be that, uh, this overdone special effects was the trend? Like what will, what no, will pan it's out a trend. It'll, it, it'll always be a trend. Like, I think that that's which one just looks both going back and forth. <laughs> oh, like okay. it's, right. We'll go too far one way, too far. The yeah. Other. You're going to go too far with one. And then the other one is going to really fresh and appealing for a while. And then everyone's going to do it. And then it's going to be tired and everybody's going to want to go back to everything looking really fake. Yeah. yeah. Well, I feel like the CG has been, cause you can just throw money at it mm-hmm. at this point, but there's not, it's not really directed. Like you look at the early, like the first Jurassic parks and stuff and they'd hide those, you know, like it would be in the dark or, yeah. you know, so um, they could use it sparingly where now they just throw everything up on the screen and it doesn't feel real. The most interesting point in the FX podcast talking about this was that the, the realist thing about it is the physics mm-hmm. that nothing can happen in the movie that can't happen in real life physically. Right. And that's what might be attracting the viewers the most. So it's not that like the actual things in the environment are all real objects, but that nobody's jumping further than they possibly could, or an explosion isn't throwing anything further than it could. Everything is more grounded in like, this is how reality happens, yeah. which also hides CG better. Well, and it's putting people in and amongst it. Um, mm. Cause there's uh, the Revenant, which wrapped shooting its Canadian side here. And this is a movie from Inaratu who made Birdman with uh, Lubezki directing our DP. And he's, I think the best director of photography in the world right now. And uh, they're just mixing actors into these large scale, like they have an avalanche in it and it happens while the actors are on set actually move. It's a real avalanche by them. And that's why it was so expensive and everything, but it's awesome. Like I can't wait to see that because it's usually, you know, cut to shot of building toppling and then close up of actor because they can't put the two in the same shot. I love the idea of like, you know, as this stuff gets technologically better, putting people in and amongst these large scale things. I mm-hmm. think that's what's much more entertaining to me mm-hmm. than, you know, two guys in superhero costumes punching each other in front of a green screen. Yeah. I'm kind of tired of that now. 
Yeah. Uh, kind, look, kind of? Or <laughs> I looked at the calendar of upcoming superhero movies, and it's exhaust. Like, I know we will be burnt out on these if for anybody that isn't already. I'm not yet. I'm enjoying superhero movies right now, but there are so many coming. There's yeah. no, there's no way I'm going to keep looking forward to them. I'm into like, I'm bringing in a new um, thing where any movie ending in man or men, I'm just <laughs> by, which is I'm you putting it missed, in now. I would have missed Birdman. Birdman. Yeah. yeah. So that's why it's going in place now. Yeah. Um, so hopefully they don't do something like that in the next little while. I, my hope is that they, they take it more in the direction like Netflix did with daredevil. Cause I don't know if you guys have seen that, but yeah, it was the first it was really good. Yeah, that is like really grounded in reality and like much different in, yeah. in tone. And in, I've heard that a lot. I haven't checked it out yet because Joe Swanberg uh, so made good. 20 movies. <laughs> but. but yeah, like the main thing people talk about that, that I had heard about ahead of time was this hallway fight scene in Daredevil where mm-hmm. uh, it's just, you know, really long fight shot and everybody's so exhausted by the end of it because they had to fight that whole time. Yeah, I, I <laughs> did actually check that out on yeah. YouTube because everyone was talking about it. Yeah. Uh, but it does show you how well you have to direct those because uh, a lot of the time the, the punches are like half a foot away from the other person. Yeah. And, you know, the sound effects, it's amazing how much it makes that work. Oh, but, totally. mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it does remind you if you're doing those long take fight scenes, you've got to actually really choreograph mm-hmm. them because mm-hmm. any little, you know, gaffes are going to be very obvious when you do more. that. Given away. My thing this week is, uh, I don't know, just a software thing that I've been using for a while and, uh, the way that I do color in video right now is uh, film convert mm-hmm. film convert is a plugin and I'm using it in premiere. It can do use it as standalone. You can use it in final cut. And it basically uh, the, the main thing that it does is applies like what looks like a lot. Like it looks like yeah. a filter that there, there's sort of two layers. One is like a contrast layer and one is a colors layer and they let you have a bunch of different old film stocks mm-hmm. and what I love it for especially is that it lets you take a flat profile. Like, uh, you know, when you're shooting with your Sony's, you'll be shooting an S log two. And actually the, the thing I'm editing right now was shot on the Canon and on the Sony. So I had to use, well, I wanted to use as flat of color profiles as I could. And so on the Sony, I was using S log two and on the Canon, I was shooting with Technicolor. Right. So these look totally different. The footage is very, yeah. very different, but Film Convert has settings for both of those presets in it. So you just say which one you were using, and then it'll apply its filter scaled to that preset that you were using. So it brings them much closer to matching. Yeah, I find usually you just have to do a little contrast adjustment if you do that. And um, I had a um, about a six-month love affair with uh, Film Convert. Um, And then I realized most of what I do goes online and... um, if you have any grain on it at all, uh, which is what I love so much about the film convert is it does look like motion picture film. Well, we left that out. They have like, is it scanned? I don't know if it's scanned or digital, but they have a really yeah. great noise emulation. Yeah. It, it, it looks really, and I don't even like to call it noise because like it looks emulation. like, yeah, it looks like grain <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's beautiful. But when you upload that onto YouTube or Vimeo, the compression just beats the hell out of it. And you wind up with really compressed looking footage from time to time. Um, and there's times where that's not the case, but, and of course web compression is getting better all the time, but I just found, yeah. um, especially I used it a lot but for aerials. Were you finding it? What you had said was that, um, when, even when you turn the noise off, it's increasing the file size of your final output mm-hmm. file. 
Yeah, it definitely was. And I, th- that might have something to do with the way it's sharpening, but, yeah. uh, and yeah, it looked, I'd look at that big master file and be like, Oh, this is beautiful. And then I'd throw it on a website and the compression would still, even with of, the, even with the grain turned, even down. with the grain right down. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you haven't, I haven't encountered that yet. So you, I mean, your recommendation also looked really great, which was uh, speed, speed grade. Yeah. Grade. Which is color and contrast without yeah. the grain. And I basically just didn't want to spend more money. I'd already bought film convert. And well, and you've already got speed grade. So yeah, you, well in, well sort of, so there's no, there's speed looks. Yeah. Speed looks is the one that I've been using. And it is, some of those come for free in speed grade. grade. Yeah. The Adobe. Yeah. But only a few of them. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure what all was in there. Yeah, it was, it was enough to like get you started. So if you've shot some really flat footage and you're just getting started with something like S-Log, you can use that to see what just like adding an appropriate amount of contrast is. Because I find just dragging the contrast slider doesn't look good. Yeah, I'd, I'd want to trust somebody that... Because like the contrast, it's not just the contrast, it's all the like levels of each color channel mm-hmm. need to be tweaked and all this stuff. So um, anyway, I've I've really liked having something that basically does that for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's great to have those, especially when it's time sensitive in the last, uh, month here, what I've been doing a lot more is I'm just trying to understand these log files more. So I've just been hand grading again yeah. uh, and it takes quite a bit longer, but I just, I'm fascinated with color right now is my big, um, big obsession. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the more you do that by hand, the more you understand what's going on. And then it's great when you drop on someone else's, you can see how different it is from what you It did. sounds like a great exercise as long as you have. As long as you've got the time for it. Yeah. When is the new uh, Adobe update coming? Because I've been really excited about it. All this new color stuff. Yeah, I I used to be so on top of it because it would be that one day that the box copy came. And now with CC, I'm (laughs) just like pleasantly surprised when new stuff shows up. When does it auto happen? Yeah. All right. Well, (laughs) that's uh, that's this week. Thanks for coming, guys. Thanks for having me again. And remember, go to the camera store on YouTube and watch the camera store TV. Yeah. Check out the 50 mil and the Tamron. They'll both be interesting. And also follow Cameron on uh, Cameron Whitman.com. <laughs> is, is that up yet? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you can find me at Stallman.com. And you can find me at TCS TV Jordan. We'll see you again. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>